gather together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Karazov Podcast, the Armature Steel, a John Henry Allen Podcast. The world's best podcast and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Good news! You've managed to download episode 93 of Superman in the Bronze Age, the only podcast providing exclusive coverage of Superman's Bronze Age adventures. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we're going to take a look at the first two issues of Marty Pasco's uninterrupted 25-issue run on the Superman title. But first, did you get some money for Christmas or Hanukkah and are trying to figure out a good way to spend it? Well, go check out InStockTrades.com. A mainstay of the collected edition market, InStockTrades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices. Most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. You can find them online at www.InStockTrades.com. Next up, we have some listener feedback from our good buddy, Russell Bragg. First, about our Christmas episode. And he writes, I'll miss your show. I have a feeling you might be back eventually, though. I'm sure there are plenty of fathers who are doing podcasts these days. Anyway, Superman 369. This comic, I don't have yet. I actually was listening to you while adding comics to my database. I got to take a lot of time off for Christmas this year. Eleven days, to be exact. Just rub it in, Russell. I thought I recognized the Renwald character you guys talked about in this issue. I actually have the other three comics that Corey Renwald appears in. New Adventures of Superboy 19, Superman 372, and number 389. I guess I need to get this one to complete the Superman-Renwald saga. Well, guess I'd better let you go for now. Until next time. P.S. I forgot to tell you that I won, or used by it now, to get Superman 233. It's an excellent condition. It came in a 232-233 lot. I've got a long way to go before completing the Sandman saga, but I'll keep plugging away. Well, thanks, Russell. Congrats on getting Superman 233. That is a pretty great issue, even if you don't have the rest of the issues in the Sandman saga. I didn't for years, and uh, I just thought it was a and other than the uh, Sandman walking off at the end of it, it's pretty much a done-in-one tale, so it's not bad. Very good. And seriously, don't worry about me going too far. Between Starman Observatory, uh, appearances on Golden Age Superman, and any other guest spots I'm going to be having, which hopefully people will still remember me, I'll still be hanging around. But yeah, so more recently, Russell wrote in again, and this time it was about last episode, episode 92. And this time he writes, Hi, Charlie. Hi, Russell. Sorry I fell behind. It happens to me every Christmas season. I guess I shouldn't listen to Christmas music or Christmas audiobooks until I've caught up on my podcast listening. I don't think that's going to happen, though. I love Christmas, and I love all of the seasonal music and books I've collected over the years. I have all three of the comics summarized in this episode, though. I hadn't really read them thoroughly, so I thank you for getting me up to speed. You're welcome. 
You and David have me in a quandary, though. I always look forward to your April Fool's Day edition where you trick your listeners into thinking you always do Flash in the Bronze Age. Since the Flash didn't have a team-up book, since Dave is doing a Superman team-up book now instead of Superboy, I was thinking ahead to what you might decide to do. Batman had a team-up book, Marvel had a team-up book, etc. I know you guys are going to do what you are going to do, but it just made me wonder. Maybe you're not going to do anything different this year. Just know I'll be listening regardless. Hope all is well with you, and keep up the great work. Well, again, thank you, Russell. Um, to be honest, last year was the first year I remembered to do uh, a April Fool's episode of the going on four years of the show. So, yeah, we uh, it was uh, just kind of luck we did it last year. And I had a lot of help making that Flash, in the Bro- uh, Flash Podcast Network promo. But, yeah, we've only done it once. So if we do do it again, it'd be really cool. Currently, though, we don't have any April Fool's Day plans because uh, we're kind of on a time crunch. See, I'm really wanting to get through all of the Marty Pasco issues before the baby gets here. And I only have so much time. And I also still got to edit the episodes and put them together and get them put out. So that would probably derail us for an episode if we tried something. Don't rule anything out, though. I might come up with something, but as of now, we currently don't really have anything planned. But you'll find out when we do, really. Uh, But that's going to do it for feedback. So here, you guys have a couple of promos, and I'll get back with Superman number 310. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go! Up! Up! And away! Atomic Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Niemeyer and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, Monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. And we're back. First up on the docket today is Superman number 310, with a cover date of April 1977, an on-sale date of January 10th, 1977, and a cover price of 30 cents. And before we keep going, I want to uh, apologize if I sound stuffy. I'm coming down with something. 
It hasn't killed me yet, but uh, I'm kind of on a time crunch now with recording this episode. So I'm going to just push on through. I hope it doesn't get too annoying for you. Know that by next episode, it hopefully will be gone. So I'll be back to normal. But anyway, the title of this issue is The Man with the Kryptonite Heart. Written by Martin Pascoe, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Tex Blysdale, and edited by Julie Schwartz. We begin our tale with members of Skull trying to break into Star Labs. While Superman wraps up two of them in the Star Lab sign, we learn that Skull agents have robbed two other Star Labs, stealing their rare man- the rare man-made elements Einsteinium and Nobelium. He then knocks out three more agents, but before he can inspect the lead-lined canister that they're carrying, star head honcho Dr. Albert Michaels runs out to thank Superman, providing the Skull agent with a target that their laser rifles can hurt. Superman gets in front of Michaels to block the blast, but the ricochet blasts a nearby roof, causing the debris to fall on one of the agents, crushing him. A furious Superman wraps the remaining agents with their laser rifles, then removes the debris. Fortunately, Michaels had called an ambulance when he spotted the guards that the Skull agents had jumped. As the medics take care of the agent, Alberts explains his presence at such a late hour to the fact that he has a private quarters adjoining his office that he sleeps in when he works late. I'm guessing he's single. While that explains his presence, it still doesn't explain how the agents knew how to bypass the alarm systems, leading Superman to believe that this was an inside job. So Superman gives Michaels the element canister and takes off to deliver the Skull Agents to the authorities, at which point another Skull Agent comes out of hiding, who Michaels freely gives the canister to, hoping that his performance with Superman was acceptable. Later, Superman speeds to WGBS to meet with Lois, but when he steps out of his office as Clark Kent, he instead runs into Steve Lombard, currently collecting donations to Lo- for Lois, who is apparently currently in a meeting with Morgan Edge. She's trying to sweet-talk him into a staff job at a Galaxy-owned newspaper out in the Midwest, and Steve is collecting donations as a going-away present. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, apparently Steve Lombard does have a heart. Somewhere. This surprises Clark, and once Steve realizes that he didn't already know about Lois leaving, things get a bit quiet and uncomfortable. He then shows Clark that he has the news department's minicam, and then tells Clark not to tell anybody. He's going to show Edge that he can do more than just mumble through the sports results by getting the scoop on the industrial spy at Star Labs. Two hours later, at the Star Labs from earlier, Steve spots Skull agents putting what appears to be a sci-fi-looking coffin in the same ambulance that we saw before. He then follows that ambulance to the Monroe Sports Arena. But while he sneaks around inside, he's knocked out by a blast from a robot that appears to have been designed by Dr. Octopus himself. Back at WGBS, Morgan Edge learns that Steve's... Back at WGBS, Morgan Edge learns about Steve's borrowing of the camera from one of the video technicians who had been monitoring the relay from the minicam until the feed went dead. Meanwhile, at Clark's apartment, after a late date, Lois explains to Clark why she's leaving. At first, she says it's because, because it's because Clark is so confusing, going from his Claude routine to Prince Charming, but then admits that he's just a constellation prize since she can't have Superman, and she starts crying. As she goes to the bathroom to clean herself up, Clark gets a call from Morgan Edge as the minicam feed cuts back on showing Lombard tied to the field goal post in the arena. After a blast of heat vision breaks the lock to the bathroom, Clark changes to Superman and flies out the window. After a quick telescopic scan of every sports arena in town turns up nothing, he heads to the Monroe Sports Arena because he learned back in Superman 274 that the dome contains lead, which of course blocks his x-ray vision. He busts through the dome and sees Steve, but before he could rescue him, he's met by a strange-looking man with wacky hair and funky-looking armor. He introduces himself as Roger Corbin, and while Superman recognizes the name, he also recognizes the man as the guy who had been crushed under the rubble earlier that evening. By this point, the name Corbin also starts setting off bells in Superman's head, but before he can react, Corbin presses a button on his left wrist that opens the chest compartment of Corbin's armor, hitting Superman with a dose of kryptonite radiation, and introducing himself by the name his brother used, Metallo. 
While Metallo uses Superman to practice his place-kicking, he lets Superman know that even though all the kryptonite on Earth was turned to iron way back at Superman 233, check it out, Russell, he's using synthetic kryptonite that was created by Skull using the Einsteinium, Nobelium, and, as it turns out, the third element that Superman thought he had saved. He also tells Superman that he blames Superman for the death of his brother John Corbin, who died way back in Action Comics number 252 from 1959. But while Metallo has been beating on Superman, our hero has figured out that the kryptonite radiations weakened whenever Metallo exerts himself physically. But before Superman can take advantage of this knowledge, Metallo gets on a jet scooter, which allows him to attack Superman with Super Blast of K radiation while he just stands there. Weakly, Superman grabs a board from the stands he's just busted through and throws it at Metallo, damaging the jet scooter. This triggers Metallo's fear of death, which is enough of a shock to induce mechanical heart failure, which reduces Metallo's kryptonite output enough for Superman to get close enough to close his chest plate and seal it shut with a blast of heat vision. Recovering, Metallo presses a button on his right wrist that basically turns him off. With Metallo dead, Superman quickly gathers up the remaining Skull Agents, but instead of freeing Steve, he instead gives him a short lecture on the difference between borrowing and stealing. Later, after dropping... I'm sorry. Later, after finishing up with the authorities, we see that the sun is now rising, and Superman returns to Clark's apartment. But it's been six hours since he trapped Lois in his bathroom. Which actually doesn't sound the way I wanted it to, but that's basically what he did. Kind of sounds stalker-ish or something. Uh, anyway, he comes up with a fairly good excuse about being called away and leaving a note, but Lois is so furious she doesn't care and tells him that they will continue their discussion tomorrow. Maybe. Meanwhile, in the police morgue, a body stirs beneath a sheet, and Metallo rises. Okay. Now that was a lot of fun. Starting off with the cover of this issue, it is drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and inked by Bob Oxner, pretty much telling, giving away the whole fact that, that Metallo was going to be in the issue and, you know, Kryptonite's apparently back somehow. Uh, it's a f actually a very dynamic-looking issue. Metallo is must be standing on something because he's higher up than Superman. Superman's reeling in pain as he's getting blasted by the kryptonite radiation. and You've got the city and a total of three people in the background. It looks really cool. I'm still not a huge fan of Oxter's inks over Garcia Lopez, but it looks pretty good here on the cover. Going into the issue proper, Superman has all has a little fun with these skull ages but also really cuts them down he acts like that he treats them like they're stupid which basically they are because well these are normal guys using weapons that are ineffective against superman and they're doing stuff in metropolis and yet uh, i don't know if you notice this but they're kind of winning anyway it's uh fun to see him wrap up the agents uh, Dr. Albert Michaels shows up. We haven't seen him in a few issues. Uh, he's, of course, the head of Star Labs and uh, Dr. Jeanette Clyburn's boss. He's not a fan of Superman, but the way he acts here, it's like he is. So Superman thinks maybe he's had a change of heart or something. Uh, moving along to page... These aren't numbered. Page 10... So we get this whole scene with Steve Lombard, and he isn't really mean to Clark at all. I mean, he's kind of inadvertently mean because he didn't know Clark didn't know about Lois. But, I mean, he's just nice the whole time. I don't know what's going on there. This must have been an April Fool's episode or issue, even though it's not a thing on the issue cover. Well, it is the April 1977 issue, so maybe that's why. See, maybe they were thinking, Russell. But... Yeah, Steve really seems to be kind of uh, sorry that he told Clark about Lois leaving. But then he pointlessly shows off the camera. He's like, well, listen, old buddy, I gotta get going. Do me a favor and don't tell anyone you saw this in my briefcase. Um, yeah. 
if he hadn't shown him, I mean, it's not like Clark really needed to know about it anyway. He finds out later on about Steve being in trouble without knowing about, having to know about the camera, but, you know, whatever. Also, Steve's wearing a bright pink suit, which was purple a page earlier. So, yeah, there's that. Um, page, what page is this? Page 12, when Lombard is checking out the Skull Agents with the ambulance. It looks like a coffin with some, it looks like there might be like a fluids bags hooked up to it, but there's also some extra tubing and piping on it. Uh, it definitely looks like sci-fi. Plus, the fact that they're loading him on an ambulance at the Star Labs rather than at a hospital should also be a big clue. Now, I mentioned that the Monroe Sports Arena was in Superman 274. That was, uh, was it Earth Protectors, Inc.? Or Protectors of the World, Inc.? Or something to that effect. Superman had gone up against some bad guys. Uh, they were held up in the Monroe Sports Arena because of the lead dome. And this was just Martin Pascoe showing off his knowledge of Superman history uh, by pulling that out of his butt and remembering about that arena. See, again, I mentioned this last time, this is pretty cool when you can have someone that can bring in form, past continuity without it, without overdoing it and killing the story. Uh, I mean, this didn't have to be the Monroe Sports Arena, but just the fact that they already established that is better than trying to come up with your own. Uh, Moving up, we get to page 13, and we get Lois and Clark talking about their relationship. This you could kind of see coming. Not that Lois, not Lois leaving, but the frustration Lois has. As I mentioned last episode, uh, other than the two issues written by... Well, actually, uh, before the Martin Pascoe issues of 305 and 306, there was f like four, three issues that touched upon Lois and Clark's relationship at least over in the Superman book. And each time, Lois or Clark would do something just stupid to Lois uh, to get away to change the Superman. And by the end, she'd apologize him and may make him some beef bourguignon. Uh, so you kind of knew something was going to happen eventually once she realized that this isn't right. But it's also kind of cool that she also basically is dumping him because... It's not fair to him. The relationship isn't honest because she's re he's she's really only accepting him as the consolation prize because of Superman. So it also shows you that she could care for Clark, but it's Superman she loves. Uh, also, her outfit is really groovy and very, very uh, bell-bottomy on the pants. Uh, moving up ahead. Now, I don't know what they did to Corbin when they made him a tallow, but his hair is constantly flowing, like there's a constant wind blowing at him, or like, you know, Energy Superman from the 90s. I say the 90s from like 97. Uh, it's just always flowing in an upwards position. It's kind of crazy especially when there's some when he's kind of balding so sometimes it looks like three tufts of hair going out in different directions uh like he would have um uh, electro uh silhouette but yeah it's and this armor is terrible looking the boots go up to the thighs and it's a lot of orange and blue and no just just doesn't look good at all uh, but Superman really gets the crap beat out of him in this part of the story. And But he, you know, he uses his brains. But, okay, here's the cool part. Page 27. I say cool, but it's not really cool. Basically, we have a recap of the whole issue, in case you're coming in late, uh, from the Skull Agents. talking, Basically letting you know what all has happened. Uh, reminding everyone, yes, Albert Michaels is the man inside Star, who's allowed them to get the elements. Uh, they created the three element, they or they used the three elements to create synthetic kryptonite. We never do find out what that third element is. Uh, 
and they arrange for the accident. They're the ones that turn Corbin into Metallo, uh, giving him a leaden cybernetic powered body, or cybernetic body powered by Kryptonite. And then it was just dumb luck that Lombard happened to f find his way in, so they didn't have to try to figure out a way to bring Superman to the to the game. It just was sure good timing. I mean, it's it's kind of cool, but as much as I like Pasco's writing, in this one case, it's like he had to, he felt he had to explain. It. I don't know if it's him or maybe Schwartz decided he wanted it in there, but it's like they felt they needed to explain what's going on because they didn't come out right out and say it earlier. It's just kind of seems kind of rude to the kids, I guess you could say. And then it looks like by the time you get to the last page, it looks like Clark has killed it for any chance he would have had with Lois as she storms off. One of these panels, though, one, two, three, fourth panel, Superman looks really weird. Now, now you remember if you've read any issues from the, from the Silver Age, uh, you know, Superman's hair was really short. I mean, it was way up there. He had a huge forehead. His hair was kept really short. Um everything and then by when we got into the bronze age you know they were putting more hair on top of his head it's a little nitpicky thing with the art but on this one panel this fourth panel it almost looked like they kind of pasted the at least the head from a that they cut out of a old silver age issue and put it there and then some kind they did some jiggering with the art to make sure that the part was the correct way although to be perfectly honest it looks like it's parted wrong. I don't know if this is inking or if it really was something that they did intentionally with some Silver Age artwork. It just looks really odd. And then of course we get the cliffhanger ending at the end with Metallo rising from apparent, the apparent dead. Really cool. And that's how the story ends. Also, I want to point out oh, but first uh, but so overall I really enjoyed the issue. Uh, the mystery subplot of Skull's Inside Man at Star, even though we know who it is, Superman doesn't. Uh, Lois wanting to leave Metropolis, uh, bringing, which brings some drama to her relationship with Clark. The return of another classic villain in a, in a way, basically, but different guy. Uh, I mean, this issue really did have it all. And the Metello subplot doesn't even get mentioned again for several issues, which allows the, re the anticipation to build for his return. Plus, and I've mentioned before my distaste for Blysdale's inking over Swan, this is probably the best I've seen of his work. Not great, and that one panel's wonky, but for the most part, it's very good. And it's a heck of a lot better than Coletta. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but I really did enjoy the issue, and believe it or not, this is going to be the last one-and-done issue we're going to have for a while. But before we move on to the next issue, I wanted to point out something in the letters column. It wouldn't be long before uh, the DC starts their Daily Planet column at the back of e almost every issue of, of every DC Comics, where you would have uh, some articles telling you... Uh, written. It's all written up to look like one page of the Daily Planet newspaper, and you'll have a couple of articles telling about certain stories that are getting ready to come up in certain... Uh, comic books that being that are being published usually one that's more known more well known like superman justice league batman wonder woman whatever and then one that's a little less well known like house of mystery warlord whatever and then there would be a question and answer thing uh, with ask ye old answer man or ask the answer man and then there'd be a little tiny little comic strip written by written and drawn by Fred Hembeck, who's known for his humor work. I believe he also worked with Mad, and he did some stuff for Marvel as well. Well, this issue has the letters written for, let's see, the second issue of Marty Pasco's initial start to the run, issue 306, The Backwards Battle of Bizarro World. And this issue is written, or this first letter is written by Fred Hembeck. And he writes, Dear Editor, Since the advent of, Sh of, the, of Schwartzian editorial control back in the 70s, back around 1970, we've hardly seen a trace of the innovations of the 50s and 60s. It's as if the slate were wiped clean. 
all of the silliness in the Superman legend was put aside. Lately, however, these concepts have slowly been resurfacing, and, wonder of wonders, they're not half bad at all. I think your initial mistake was confusing concepts with handling. The concepts of those bygone days were rich with story possibilities, but if they were handled as they were then, they wouldn't make it with today's more sophisticated audience. If any episode of Tales of the Bizarro World were printed today, it would just it just plain would not make it. But Backward Battle for the Bizarro World in issue 306? Ah, oh, now that's another story. The first comic story I was interested in was back in the second grade, when someone was passing around an issue of Adventure Comics featuring the short-lived Bizarro series. I recognized soups from TV, but here were these bizarre creatures doing silly things like brushing their teeth with shoe polish and shining their shoes with toothpaste. Needless to say, I loved it. So you might say I've always had a soft spot. No, no, not in my head. For old Bizarro, because he, even more than Superman himself, started me on this wonderful hobby. I was a bit anxious about how he would translate to today's audience, but I shouldn't have worried. Marty Pasco did an incredible job. Sloughing aside the low comedy aspects of the character, he brought out the poignancy and pathos inherited or inherent in the original concept, and he was true to all that went before in his well-written and concise history of the Bizarro legend. When Bizarro broke into tears while Superman offered his rather inadequate apology, I was moved. Superman's words flowed naturally, and Superman—or I'm sorry, Pasco's words flowed naturally—and Superman and his friends have never sounded more real. The resolution of the Toyman aspect of the plot was surprising, sad, and well done. Bravo, a hundred times, bravo. I can just note that super artist Swan, along with Oxner, turned in a very inspired job. Kudos for them as well. Fred Hembeck, 48 Custer Street, Buffalo, New York, 14214. And Bridwell, who, E. Nelson Bridwell, who was the guy that responded to the letter columns back then, wrote, We respond with a bizarro cheer, but you know what kind of cheer those backward bizarros would give you. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, Fred Hembeck is known for his humor. I'm also friends with him on Facebook. He's actually wished me happy birthday. It's pretty cool. Uh, but that's it for that issue. Uh, here, let me play you a couple more promos, and then I'll be right back with issue number 311. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com we now return to superman and the bronze age all right superman number 311 had a cover date of may 1977 an on sale date of february 7th 1977 and a cover date of cover date i already said that a cover price of just 30 pennies the title of the story is plague of the antibiotic man Written by Marty Pasco, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Frank Springer, edited by Julie Schwartz, and this issue sees the debut of a new credit, colorist Jerry Serpy. 
this is this is the start, folks. This is the start when we start getting more uh, credits. Colorist will be here for a while, and in a few issues, we will get letterers. So it's going to be kind of cool. Anyway, now I know this is going to sound weird, but just follow along, and it will all make sense eventually. <clears throat> Using Flash as if he was a baseball bat, Namak uses the speedster to knock Superman right through the Welcome to Central City billboard, telling the Man of Steel that trying to stop him is pointless, since he was able to survive the explosion of Krypton. After Superman swings around onto the offensive and attacks Namek, the Kryptonian monster then uses Flash to swat Superman through a tree, and we learn that Flash is vibrating fast enough to surround himself with an air cushion to prevent himself from being crushed by being slammed to Krypto uh, Superman's Kryptonian body. Superman attacks the alien with the tree as Flash recovers and runs in to join the fight. But when Superman ducks Namek's punch, it connects with Flash's jaw, sending him flying out into orbit. Whoa. Now, I know what you're saying. Basically, you're probably thinking, uh, what? Well, to make sense of all that, we're just going to rewind about 36 hours to a weird asteroid-looking spacecraft. Inside, someone is petting their little elephant-looking alien, Jevik, stating that all this is in readiness, or stating that all is in readiness and that the mission will be complete in 24 hours. And seriously, folks, this looks like uh, Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. I mean, you got the guy's hands. They're not metallic. They're just, they actually look like human hands. Petting this, ele petting this little elephant thing. And that's all you see, just the hands and the pet. Weird. But anyway, now that we're still thoroughly confused, we head down to Earth, specifically to a train full of journalists on their way to the World News Conference in Central City. Being the jerk that he is, Steve Lombard uses the fact that Lois won't be seeing Clark anymore as a reason to have dinner with him that night, despite the fact that he's had to bring his nephew Jamie along with him. Still ticked that Morgan Edge is forcing him to go to this conference as punishment for borrowing the station's minicam last issue, Nice to see that Superman's speech really sunk in there. And the fact that Lois basically says no. Steve decides to take out his frustrations on Clark by proving Kent's yeah, by proving Kent's wimpiness in front of Jamie. He does this by saying hi to Clark and then slapping him on the back, causing Clark to spill his milk on the female he's been talking to. And then she slaps him with his with her purse. You man. Anyway, later at the Sheridan Central Hotel in Central City, Jamie uses a, or Jamie finds a stray dog and names him Ralphie. That's yeah. Anyway, meanwhile outside, a mysterious character wearing a purple trench coat and hat—I mean, hey, it was the '70s—watches as the director of the hotel's ski patrol boards a ski lift with his assistant, and then quickly gets aggravating when he finds out that the snowmaker on the intermediate slope is busted. But before he can get too angry, both men are overcome by... something, and they just fall off the lift. Inside, Clark's superhearing picks up the men's screams as they fall, so with a quick burst of heat vision on Ralphie's tail to send him running off, everyone is too busy watching the dog to notice Clark slip away and change to Superman. Outside, he quickly catches the two men, but but their ski poles are still falling. Fortunately, being that this is his hometown, the Flash shows up in time to catch the poles before they can impale anyone. After depositing the men inside the hotel, the heroes see that not only are they unconscious, but they're also covered in weird splotches. Leaving Flash to stay with the men until the medics arrive, Superman investigates the character in purple who he spotted earlier when he went to go rescue the men. Along the way, he sees Steve sweet-talking to the lady that Clark spilled his drink on earlier, and with a blast of super breath, sends Steve's drink into her face, earning Mr. Lombard a purse to the face. But by this time, the character in purple has disappeared. While Superman searches for him, the medics have arrived, and while the men are being loaded into the ambulance, Lois decides to tell Flash about her plans to move to Central City at the end of the month, because a superhero she doesn't really know would really care about something like that. But it does give Iris Allen a chance to see Lois talking to the speeder, telling her that rumor has it that the Flash is married and Central City it doesn't like homewreckers. See, she thinks she can do this because she's married to Barry Allen, who's actually the Flash, but Flash has a thought bubble that says that Iris is going to get it later. I can only imagine what he's going to do to her. But moving on. 
And just as three more people exit the hotel with skin blotches and walking like zombies, Superman catches up to the character in purple and learns that he is Namek of Krypton, who states that he is not responsible for the plague affecting those in the hotel. Superman doesn't believe him, and so starts the fight that we saw at the beginning of the issue. Now, with Flash in orbit, and coincidentally passing by the asteroid ship from earlier, we learn that he is protected for now by a small bubble of air held around his body by his super-speed vibratory aura, which gives Superman time to deal with Namek. A super-powered punch since Namek flying, giving Superman time to remember Namek's origin story. He was just a normal-looking Kryptonian man who wanted to be immortal, so he illegally killed a Rondor, an animal whose horn radiated a healing ray that could cure all sickness and mend any injury. In his lab, he created an elixir from the Rondor's horn and drank it. And while it did give him immortality, it also turned him into a walking antibiotic and turned him into a grotesque monster. After Namek crash lands into an island in the West Indies, Superman digs around a nearby volcano, apparently about to blow, until he until he's able to actually lift it off the ground. He finds this to be a little more difficult than it should be, but he's still able to use the lava inside to stun Namek. Unfortunately, it appears to have done more than that as the lava seems to have disintegrated Namek. A supervision examination of the lava shows that there were tiny traces of kryptonite in the lava, which not only explains Superman's difficulty, but also means that Superman just broke his vow never to kill. This means he's going to have to give up his career as Superman, but first, he has some unfinished business to take care of. A quick scan of telescopic vision re reveals that Green Lantern responded to the signal from Superman's JLA communicator and has taken care of rescuing Flash. Next, he heads back to the hotel and changes back to Clark to check in on the plague, which should be over now with Namek is dead. But when Lois spots him, she berates him for missing their dinner date, where they were going to try and talk things out between them. But in the middle of Lois yelling, she suddenly faints, and Clark notices the splotches appearing on her face. And now, the woman he loves is dying, and he has killed the only being in the universe who could possibly save her. Will Lois die? What is the bizarre plague? And what, or who, is causing it? What of the alien ship overhead? And what is Jamie Lombard's connection with all this? The terrible answers begin to explode in Superman number 312. Now, tell me that wasn't an exciting issue. Well... Hopefully I conveyed the excitement, because, you know, I don't know. But this was an exciting issue, I'll just tell you. Uh, we start off on page one, and we get something we don't normally see, where the splash page image is actually part of the story. And it is, of course, the image of Flash being used to hit Superman through the Central City sign. Usually it's this, the uh, splash page was basically a second cover, which was started way back when, in the uh, back in the Golden Age, really. But this time it actually plays into the story. And like I said before, I'm not a huge fan of Frank Springer's inking. I didn't say that. But uh, this battle is actually pretty cool. I, I would imagine it probably looks a little cooler if it's drawn by Jose, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, or any number of other people, but... You know, I still think it's pretty dynamic. You get Superman doing a flip of, around the billboard sign to come back and get Namek. Uh, Superman attacking him with the same tree that had just knocked him out. Uh, Flash getting punched into the atmosphere. It's really cool. Now, uh, let's see. Now, pay, by page four, we're back on Earth looking at the train. Now, it's pretty cool. We can see Lois talking to Steve and little Jamie there. Uh, we see some other people. I'm sure at least one of them is some kind of a cameo, but I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell with the inking. This one guy on here might be Kurt Swan, but I don't know. But we do see Clark, and he's definitely talking to someone. So that's a cool little you know, tidbit to make sure you add in there. Uh, also, it appears that Jamie Lombard has the exact same hairdo as Steve, which is not saying much. Uh, page 5, after being so good last issue... Uh, Steve does a really good job of forcing Clark to spill his milk, which is actually a trick he's done before, so it, I guess he's slipping as he gets older. Now, we also see this guy, he, he looks like the Hunchback no of Notre Dame, or I'm sorry, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, stole Ben Grimm's uh, 
height, you know, the outfit Ben Grimm wears when he goes out in public, where he wears the hat and trench coat. It's weird, and it's purple. I know, I know, limitations on colors, but still, purple. I mean, even Steve's wearing a brown suit. Uh, page 9, now we get a good explanation of why Flash is here. Uh, he was on his way to keep a lunch date with his wife. And as we all know, uh, Iris Allen is a reporter, apparently for the picture news. So she would also be at the hotel for the news conference thing. And therefore, him showing up is just good timing. And it makes perfect sense. So, see, that's the kind of stuff I like, when it makes sense. Not, uh, or even if he spotted the trouble from somewhere, not just some weird just happened to be passing by and thought you might need some help, Superman. Yeah. Anyway. Now, on page 10, I it's slightly out of character for Superman to do what he did to Steve. It's, well, it is kind of out of character, but then again, it isn't. And because it's kind of payback, but still, usually Superman would have either gotten back to at him right there, or he would have just kind of let it go and tried something else. This one is kind of a out of nowhere. Steve has to be questioning how the liquid in his glass jumped out and into the face of that lady. However, I will point out that that's a shot glass. So, not a shot glass. That's a, uh, it looks like Steve might be, you know, with some scotch. Because that's the kind of glass he's got. Uh, let's see. But moving right along. Lo uh, but yeah, bottom of this page 10. Lois really doesn't have any reason to point out that she might be moving there. That's just kind of weird. But then Iris Allen really gets into it. She's like, I wouldn't count on it, Lois. Rumor has it the Flash is a married man. Just as rumor has it that you're kind of a superhero groupie. And Lois says, well, I never. And Iris says, just see that you don't. Maybe you've given up the idea of soups ever giving you a tumble. So you're headed, so you're leaving Metropolis with a bad case of sour grapes. But just remember one thing. Central City doesn't like home wreckers. And Flash just goes, just wait, Iris. Wait till we get home. Boy, are you in for it? That's a little. She's coming on strong. I've I haven't read other than that issue I covered last April Fools. Uh, I really haven't read Bronze Age Flash, so I'm wondering if Iris is that rough all the time. Anyway, this is technically the first time Superman's met Namek. Apparently, we got to see about him one other time back in Superman 282, which I'm. Thinking, I believe, uh, when I looked it up earlier, was uh, one of those fabulous worlds of Kryptons. So that's probably how we learned about him. I believe Pasco wrote that too, so that's kind of cool. It's like a setup for the future. Interesting. Um, he didn't look this grotesque in the Phantom Zone minis. I mean, he looked pretty bad, but I don't remember the giant hunchback. I'll have to go back and look. Uh, maybe Gene Collins felted him. Uh, but I definitely prefer his look in that to the way he looks here. Here, it... I don't know. He just doesn't look as threatening. I mean, it makes sense, because Swan's not that kind of artist, but yeah. Now, the question I have, and I sh should have brought this up earlier, but no matter how good that cushion of air is, how the heck did Flash survive a Kryptonian punch to the chin? His head should be floating in space, while his body should be... Well, probably should have flown somewhere, but it shouldn't be connected to the head, I'll tell you that. And then, uh, the bottom of page 12, we kind of get what we got last issue, where partway through the story, we get a reminder of everything that's happened so far. Granted, here it kind of makes sense, because we've now gotten to the point where we caught up with the beginning of the story. It's just... A little weird although I do like that the caption box is kind of drawn in there like it's a piece of paper stuck to the uh, stuck to the comic panel and there's a paper clip drawn in there to make it look like that's what's holding it in place it's kind of cool uh, but then we get Sup uh, Superman f punch a Namek and we learn about Namek's history which we also learned again about in in the Phantom Zone miniseries but it kind of brings up something that 
Superman should be remembering but is forgetting, and I'll get to that in a minute. Now, this is one of those cool feats. I believe he did it, a similar thing in Superman 4, but he's also done this a lot of time in the lots of times in the pre-crisis comics of burrowing. Usually he's using super or some heat vision to cut through the rock, but this time it looks like he's just burrowing. And he lifts the volcano to dump the lava onto Namek. Now, I'm no expert with volcanoes, but I thought that the lava would be a little further down and that if he's going to pick up this lava or this volcano, that the liquid hot magma would actually spill out underneath the volcano so that Superman's not really dousing, wouldn't have anything to douse Namek with because it's coming up from pockets underground and slowly moves up. So I would I would think that if he's going to bust the volcano, it would all drain out and you'd have a big mess on your hands. But apparently, comic book physics works differently than real physics sometimes, which is a complete shock to me. Uh, so, page 16. Uh, so, Namek's gone, which brings up the question, if Namek could survive the destruction of Krypton, which, of course, was turned to kryptonite after it exploded, how has he been dissolved by lava with kryptonite in it? Especially small traces of it. That was my big red herring right there. Namek could survive kryptonite, uh, the a planetary explosion in which all the rock was turned to kryptonite. But he can't survive some lava with kryptonite? In it? I don't think so. But we'll get more on that in the next couple of issues. Uh, I do like that Green Lantern does save Flash. Although he doesn't put him inside any kind of... Cut, uh, protective bubble. He just has Flash sitting in a green in a ring construct hand as they fly to the JLA satellite. That's you know, not, not smart. Uh, let's see. And then of course the last page, the irony. Uh, you could tell there's some Marvel influence with this. He thinks he's cured the disease and then it turns out Lois gets it. He then realizes that if Namek really wasn't the cause, he could have been the cure, but he's dead. See the irony? That's a Stan Lee thing. Thank you, Spider-Man Classics. But yeah, it's... That's not good. That takes Lois out of the story for most of the rest of the time, but yeah. But, uh... Unfortunately, or unfortunately, but yeah, that's it. Now... Now, first of all, the glaring thing I want to point out is that I'm not a fan of Frank Springer's inking. It's just too heavy in places, making the art look a little splotchy. But, despite his best efforts, Swan's pencils were still able to shine through, so the art isn't too terrible. It just doesn't look as good as it could. Uh, now, of course, since I covered the Phantom Zone miniseries back in October, I kind of spoiled part of the story. but it isn't uh i do remember when i read this for the show i was very curious to find out what happened to him uh i do like how pasco didn't shoehorn flash into the story as i've mentioned and brings him into it in a believable way and while the first couple of pages were confusing it was an interesting and exciting way to bring in the story i thought i had missed some pages sort of but it's just one of those starting the stories in media rays, which I should have known because I literally had just read two Starman uh, stories that started much the same way. But never let it be said that I could put two and two together. Now, the other question is, what's up with there being kryptonite on Earth that hasn't been turned to iron? That little mystery, Pasco slipped in without much fanfare, so it's really easy to miss up to miss it. I mean, yes, he even points it out by having Superman point out, oh, there's kryptonite in the lava. But even Superman isn't like, wait a minute. So I like that. It's, it is something that will get picked up on later, but for now it's just a mystery you don't even realize is there. And what a cliffhanger. Well done, Mr. Pasco. Well done. But that's going to do it for my part of the episode. So next up... Dave Weeder presents DC Comics Presents number 11, featuring Superman and Hawkman.
Welcome back to another edition of Dave Weeder Presents, where I, J. David Weeder, look at the Superman team-ups within the pages of DC Comics Presents. Last time we saw Red Tornado stop by, and this time Hawkman graces the pages of DC Comics Presents. Jeez, where, where do I begin with Hawkman uh, without getting too far into it? He was an archaeologist named Carter Hall, and then later he was an alien from Thanagar named Katar Hall, and then kind of both. Essentially, he is the alien posing as the archaeologist, and thanks to a set of wings made from the nth metal, that's N-T-H, he is able to fly, and thanks to being a being from Thanagar, he has enhanced strength and invulnerability. He has a wife named Shiara, who shares his powers, and that's pretty much the streamlined version of Hawkman that will fit our needs without getting into a continuity nightmare for which this little segment, you know, this whole podcast, doesn't have the runtime for. My personal take on Hawkman is that he is kind of the better parts of Batman and Superman in one hero, and he likes to wear outfits that show off his chest. I will say this, though, if I had muscles like his, I would rock a five-point harness with wings, too. My introduction to Hawkman came through Challenge of the Super Friends, as well as the Superpowers action figure, which was a standout figure in that line's first wave. In fact, I do remember that I had bought the Brainiac figure at one store, and just minutes after leaving that store, about halfway across town, Brainiac broke. His leg just broke off. So we ended up going to another store to return and exchange it. And there on the peg was Hawkman. Still one of my favorite figures from that uh, particular line. I do have that figure currently. But the issue at hand is DC Comics Presents number 11, the July 1979 issue, which features a story entitled Murder by Starlight. The credits for this round are writer Carrie Bates, penciler Joe Staten, letterer Ben Oda, and colorist Adrian Roy. And if you want to peek at this issue, I recommend Showcase Presents, DC Comics Presents, the Superman Team-Ups Volume 1, because you can get this and many other issues in one volume for pretty inexpensive. The cover and the first page depict the scene of Hawkman attacking Superman, having gone mad with a Polaris punch. What is that? What goes on here? Aren't these two supposed to be fellow Justice Leaguers? Let's look closer. And we open the issue with a bit of a reverse cliffhanger. You see, in issue 10, Superman was receiving a, an award and then realized that the award was actually a powerful bomb and he couldn't throw it because it was glued to his hand. So he flew it into the air and the resulting explosion sent him back to World War II where he teamed up with Sergeant Rock. That was all in issue 10 of DC Comics Presents. Here we see Superman returning from that adventure only moments after he left our time, but he was actually gone two days on that side of the adventure. So having just returned, there's a mystery afoot. A, who set the bomb? And there's another in the fact that Superman had spotted Carter Hall in the crowd of onlookers. Carter Hall, also known as Hawkman, also known as Katar Hall, and the other hero did not budge to help the Man of Steel. Well, thankfully, that little mystery gets solved. Hawkman attacks Superman, raining blows on him and admitting that he set the bomb. Superman does not fall to Hawkman, but the winged warrior flies off, leaving a flock of hawks to attack the congregation, which distracts Superman to allow the escape. Later at the Daily Planet, Clark Kent tries to figure out why Hawkman would turn on him. Did he stick Carter with monitor duty one too many times? Did he forget to invite Hawkman to the last JLA social? We don't know. Even a conversation between Shiara, aka Hawkwoman, Hawkgirl, however you want to look at it, yields no answers. She's just as confused as Superman is, and twice as worried. But Clark has no time to think about this, as he is needed as Superman to entertain a Daily Planet contest winner, who gets to spend an afternoon taking pics of the Man of Steel. As Superman takes the contest winner from place to place to pose for pictures, he keeps running into a bluebird from time to time. And meanwhile, villain Frankie Rails reveals that he is using Polaris power to control Hawkman using star power. Sounds like a hero that I know. Turns out Frank had a brother that, you know, he had pretty much written off, but who had made himself very rich in the stock market, who had also discovered this Polaris power, and Rails has charged up Hawkman with star power. See, Polaris is the son of Thanagar, as in S-U-N. So using that, Rails is able to control Hawkman and turn him explosive. So when he and Superman tangle next, it will result in a giant explosion. Oh, that's bad. That could destroy Hawkman and Superman. But never fear, as Superman's alter ego, Clark Kent, talks to the contest winner, who has noticed the bluebird in the pictures, as in all of the pictures, and the bluebird is sitting outside Clark's office window. Hawkman shows up and calls Superman out for a fight, and the expected big bada-boom happens, meaning Frank Rails has won. Or has he? 
See, turns out that Hawkman slipped a message to the Bluebird, which Clark got just in time. So Superman rolled with Hawkman's punch and the explosion went off with no harm to either hero. This meant that Rails took off the helmet, which released his control over Hawkman, and then the heroes took him to jail. And so ends the crossover. You know, I feel kind of conflicted here. See, I was excited. I thought I was going to have a lot of great things to say because when I read the issue, just reading it through first run... I really enjoyed the heck out of it, just top to bottom. It had the right Bronze Age balance of wacky and serious superhero action, Hawkman didn't overshadow Superman, and the way the story wraps around the previous issue was kind of cool. Then I came back to sort out my critical thoughts, and the whole center dropped out on me a bit, like lifting a box with a soggy bottom, everything just came crashing down. But before I get to that, let me start with what I like. Joe Staten's art to start with. He makes Superman look on model, but a little bit sharper, and Hawkman looks hardcore but not drawn as haggard as he would become. Most people want to draw Hawkman just ragged and savage. And here he retains some of that, but he's still a superhero. The fight scenes look like they should. The punches look like they meet solidly. Looks knockdown, drag out. This is what would happen between two superpowered people colliding. Superman entertaining the contest winner was nice. It showed Superman's devotion to keeping his promise. A little bit of a Silver Age trope. And even with the strange danger looming right over his head, he's still Superman. Heck, I even liked the Bluebird being sort of an SOS, even though it was a strange bird language that Hawkman taught him. Eh, you know, stranger things, right? So what is it that bothers me then? If, if, the, if I can get past the Bluebird, what's a bridge too far? The villain. Frank Rails. The villain is a guy in sort of a Spaceballs type helmet. He looks like he should be combing the desert with a giant ace pick, who uses Polaris energy to make things blow up. But it also controls Hawkman because... Polaris is Thanagar's son. Huh? See, the premise is that if Hawkman is charged with the power of his home planet's son, he can be controlled and turned into a human bomb. Think about that. The son of his home planet, where he originated, where this sunlight is everywhere, imbuing everything, including Qatar, turns him explosive and makes him controlled. This is the equivalent of us going to another planet with a different sun, and being controlled by the natural rays of our sun. Does that make sense to you? And yeah, I, I will even give you a little bit of a no prize. There may be something or other about the mixture of these rays in that environment, but it wouldn't make us hypnotized and explosive, would it? So when reading this issue, as soon as the villain's plot was rendered moot, I realized that it was just stupid beyond that. The plot, I mean. Why are we doing a multi-part plan? Just do a one-step plan to kill the hero of your choice as fast and straightforward as you can, dudes. You shouldn't need a spreadsheet and a flowchart to commit villainy. Get Hawkman all hopped up on the Polaris energy, run him at Superman like a kamikaze bomber, and call it good. So once that's taken out, a fun read is rendered into a big pile of frustration. Folks, this is the life of a podcaster, ruining comics for ourselves one issue at a time. I will say this, though, even at pointing out the big problem at the center. If you're just going in for a fun read without too much thought thrown into the mix, this is not a bad buy if you find it in the 50 cent dollar bin. Just don't look too closely at the plot. But either way, next time the Atom stops by to hang with the Man of Steel when I take a look at DC Comics Presents number 15. Until then, it's back to monitor duty for me. Great job, Dave. Thanks. And that's going to do it for this episode. Next time, we're going to take a look at Superman 312 and 313 as the mystery deepens and even more players are brought into the field. And we still will not have reached the end of the story next time. Pretty crazy. Plus, Firestorm battles Superman in DC Comics Presents number 17. We'll see you then. And now... Here's Charlie. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. Show notes can be found at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, as well as links to the RSS and iTunes feeds and more. You can also find the show on Stitcher Smart Radio, as well as Facebook, where you can get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of both the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and the Comics Podcast Network 
at www.comicspodcasts.com. Please make sure to check out both sites for more great podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless. Listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. <laughs>